Well, sometimes good enough is actually pretty great, like in the case of a good enough job. Work has come to define us, says writer Simone Stolzoff. Our livelihoods become our lives and the source of self-esteem and even happiness. But there are times when a great job, a dream job, comes with nightmare consequences. It becomes the centre of our lives at the expense of everything else. There has to be a balance in Simone calls for a re-evaluation of what we want out of work and how much we really want what we do to define who we are. His new book is called The Good Enough Job, What We Gain When We Don't Put Work First. And Simone joins me now. Hi. Hi, it's great to be here, Jesse. Uh, Nice to talk to you. Great idea, by the way. And the book begins with the story of a fisherman and an MBA, two people with very different approaches to work. Can you share the story? Sure, yeah. The story is a famous parable. It was actually an adaptation from a German short story from the 60s. But the general premise is straightforward. So there is an MBA, a sort of businessman who is on vacation in a small fishing village, and he sees the fisherman come in with his daily haul. And the businessman is impressed by the fish and says, hey, how did you catch those? And the fisherman says, oh, I, I, you know, I just go out for a few hours in the morning and I catch my fish and then I, I come back. And the businessman says, so what do you do with the rest of the day? And the fisherman says, oh, I you know, go take a nap with my wife and then I play with my kids and go into town to have a drink and play guitar. And the businessman says, oh, you, you have it all wrong. You've got it backwards. You know, if you listen to me, you can scale up your operation and move to the big city and open up a cannery. <laughs> and the fisherman says, oh, and, and then what? And the businessman says, and then you can start selling your fish internationally and, and make lots of money. And the fisherman says, and then what? And the businessman says, and then you can take your company public and sell it for millions of dollars. And the fisherman says, and then what? And the businessman says, then you can move to a small fishing village, sleep late, <laughs> go back, have a nap with your wife and kids, <laughs> go into town and play guitar and drink some wine. <laughs> yeah, great. And the fisherman continues on down the street. And so, I, you know, I love this story just because it shows that, you know, for so many people, work has become an end in and of itself. We sort of have forgotten why we work which is to make a living and not to be the entirety of our lives. You went to university and you studied both poetry and economics. So is the struggle real for you, the struggle between doing what you love doing and what pays the bills? Yeah, you know, I think from an early age, there's been that tension between art and commerce in my life. And it's played out, you know, in my 20s, I really played Goldilocks with different careers, looking for a dream job, trying to find one that could be sort of my vocational soulmate. And, you know, on the other side of all of that searching, I've come to the conclusion that rather than work be the center around which the rest of our life orbits, we ought to actually start with a vision of what a well-lived life looks like and think about how our work might be able to support it. Yeah, because I doubt our parents went to work thinking this is my passion, or not all of our parents at least. Um, This job as identity idea, is that a a, a generational thing? Yeah, you know, if your last name is Miller or Baker, you might beg to differ. But I do think there is something (laughs) unique to the last, say, 40 years or so. Um, In the book, I make the case that 
the rise of of what my journalist colleague Derek Thompson dubbed workism, you know, treating work akin to a religion, not just something that you look to for a paycheck, but also for a community, a sense of purpose, a reason for being is born out of the decline of other sources of meaning and identity in our lives. So if you think about the decline of organized religion or community and neighborhood groups, then the need for belonging and purpose and meaning remains. And many people have turned to the place where they spend the majority of their time, which is the office. Does social media play a part? I think definitely, you know, and especially in today's day and age, people take to social media to parade around their professional accomplishments for the world to see. I think this is also particularly pertinent in the U.S. where what do you do is often the first question we ask when we meet someone new. Mm. You know, in the States, it's a, there's a very work-centric culture that is bolstered by the celebrity CEOs and plastering always do what you love on the walls of our co-working spaces. <laughs> We really, you know, center life around work and try and squeeze everything else into the margins. Uh, yeah. Um, can you pinpoint a moment when work sort of became central to our identity, when it became everything for a lot of people? Yeah, you know, with any sort of social phenomenon, it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment. But if you look back into the, the 1970s, at least, the average American and the average French and the average German worker all worked roughly the same number of hours. And fast forward to today, now the average American works about 30% more than the average German. So you ask sort of what happened? Um, you know, I think there, these trends are definitely visible in the United States, but in many ways, Americans have exported their huh. management systems and work culture, much like Big Macs and Levi's jeans. You know, I think part of the problem is how tied work is to our ability to survive, especially in the United States when we, for example, tie our health care to employment, mm. or if you're an immigrant, your ability to stay in the country is contingent on your W-2 job. And so, you know, part of the reason why our relationship to work is so fraught is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. And I'm curious for you, you know, how do you feel like this has grown in New Zealand? Do you think some of these trends of work centricity and work as identity have become more prevalent over the past few decades? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm surrounded by journalists. I don't know a journalist who doesn't count journalism as their number one identity. Um, but then I think also the conversations we have on this um, radio show often comes down to uh, individualism being a huge factor. This kind of cult mm. of me first and um, not relying on anybody, not owing anyone anything. And I wonder if that's an aspect of this, of, you know, is there a selfish or individualist aspect of pouring everything into work? Yeah. And I think that people are learning that it's short-sighted as well. You know, the U.S. is an incredibly individualistic country where, you know, our core mythology is this idea that anyone can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, and rise to the top. But I think this mentality loses a lot of the benefits of more collectivist ethos. And now we're seeing, you know, just a few weeks ago, the Surgeon General of the United States, our kind of chief medical officer, declared loneliness a public health epidemic in the United States and cited our culture around work centricity as a primary driver. 
And so maybe all of this individual ambition, individual striving is not actually making us any happier. So what choice did you make when you came to a crossroads in your own career? Yeah, well, I've had a few. I think one that really became the impetus of the book was this moment where I was working for you know a trendy online magazine in, in New York City, and a recruiter from a design agency reached out to me. And you know, I always take the the call, the interview. I kind of went through the process passively, and by the end, I was standing at this fork in the road. I had this career as a, as a magazine writer, as a journalist in one direction, and I had a career, potential new career as a, as a designer on the other path. And, you know, on one hand, it's like, woe is me, you know, oh, the, the agony of having to choose between two attractive job offers. <laughs> but on the other, it really sent me for an existential loop. It didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs as much as it felt like I was to- choosing between two versions of me. And so really that became the first kernel of insight that led to the research project that became the book. It was how did our work become so central to who we are? Certainly we are more than just what we do. We are more than just workers. We are siblings and parents and neighbors and friends and citizens. And yet it seems the way our society is oriented, our professional lives are the primary player and everything else falls to the margins. I imagine that's a bit of a red pill moment um, once you see that, that there might be a third way and that maybe this whole kind of game is set up wrong, you would start to see it everywhere. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there was a red pill moment for many people in the pandemic when either for no fault of their own, they were let go. And, you know, if your job is your sole source of identity and you lose it, what's left? But I think everyone, regardless of what type of work they did, had to renegotiate their relationship to work in some way in the past few years. And I think one of the great awakenings of this, you know, great resignation, great reconsideration, whatever you want to call it, Mm. is that maybe there is a better way. Maybe there's an alternative to giving all of our best time and all of our best energy to the workplace. I'm talking to Simone Stolzoff, whose book is called The Good Enough Job, What We Gain When We Don't Put Work First. And I would have thought this advice to follow your passion was fairly uncontroversial, Simone, but why do you think that might be bad advice? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a mixed bag, but I think on one hand, following your passion can uh, exacerbate existing inequalities. You know, I rely on the research of this professor from the University of Michigan named Aaron Check who says that, you know, not everyone has the same, what she calls springboards and safety nets. Mm -hmm. Basically, passion jobs are not equally accessible. And when we tell everyone the sort of blanket advice to follow your passion, it works best for people that have the privilege to be able to manage the risk of doing so. So for example, you know, in our career in in journalism, many of the entry-level positions, at least in the U.S., they don't pay a living wage. And so for folks who have the ability to maybe live at home for a few years or have a parent subsidize their, their lifestyle, it's great to follow your passion. But for the majority of people, they don't work to self-actualize. They work to survive. And the idea that if you just follow your passion, the money will follow is not always borne out in people's lived experience. You talked to some really interesting people, including a chef whose passion is dairy-free. What happened to her when her job became her identity? 
Yeah, so the chef story is really the story of individual ambition. So there's the chef and she goes straight out of culinary school to work at one of the most famous restaurants in the world for a man who has multiple three-star Michelin restaurants. And she becomes intoxicated by the culture of achievement. And she ends up going into business with this celebrity chef and the two of them work together and grow this business to a point where she gets completely burned out. And, you know, I won't spoil the, the ending of the chapter. You'll have to read the book. <laughs> but it was this kind of rude awakening for her where she thought that her job and her achievement would ultimately fulfill her. And even after achieving much of the success that she once dreamed of, she realized that she was underinvesting in all of these other aspects of who she was. And it left her in a position where she was ultimately taken advantage of. And really, it took that for her to come to the place to realize that, oh, I actually need to actively invest in some of these other sides of who I am in order to be a more resilient worker and a fuller version of who I am as a human. You quote the psychologist Esther Perel, who says, too many people bring the best of themselves to work and bring the leftovers home. Um, what happens when you work so much you don't do anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably relatable to many of our listeners, but I think one of the things that often gets missed is that work doesn't just take our best hours, but it often takes our best energy too. And in order to show up as a good parent or a good friend or a good member of your you know, cricket team, you need to hmm. be able to have the energy in order to invest in these sides of yourself too. You know, our identities and sources of meaning, they're kind of like plants. They require time and energy in order to grow. And part of the problem with this kind of work centricity or work centric existence is often, you know, you come home and people don't have energy to do anything beyond maybe turn off their brain and turn on Netflix for a few hours. And then it becomes a sort of cycle where people work all the time. And so they don't know what to do when they're not working and people don't know what to do when they're not working. And so they work all the time. And so, you know, what I advocate for in the book is to diversify your identity, you know, much as an investor benefits from diversifying the sources of their investments, we too benefit from diversifying the different ways in which we can find meaning. So, you know, diversifying your identity can come in many forms. It can mean getting more involved in your relationships, in your local community. It can mean finding a hobby or trying to pursue a passion, not for any sort of monetary end, but just for the love of doing so. But the research shows that when we have more self-complexity, when we have cultivated and invested in other parts of who we are, we not only can bounce back more in the face of adversity, but we also tend to be better workers too. We tend to be more creative problem solvers. You know, this makes sense intuitively. If you are centering your self-worth on your work and your boss says something disparaging, it can spill over into all other facets of yeah. your life. But if you have a diversified sense of identity, you're able to, you know, be able to find meaning and purpose in other ways. Man, that applies to so many areas of life, I think. It's, you know, I was just thinking about kids. Um, 
a, a diversified friend group, you know, friends from different schools and different ages and different genders. It just means if one thing goes wrong in your central kind of space, you've got this big kind of uh, support. You, your entire self-esteem isn't locked up in one tiny little area. Yeah, of course. You know, and obviously there's the risk of losing that. But even in less extreme situations, I think part of what I've observed in the United States is there are these incredibly high expectations that we place on our jobs to deliver, you know, self-actualization. And actually, by thinking about a job as just one among many aspects of who we are, by thinking about a job as in service of your vision for a well-lived life, as opposed to the central access around which the rest of our life orbits, we will ultimately be better off. So what does a good enough job look like? That's the title of your book, uh, The Good Enough Job. What are we looking for? Yeah, so, you know, it's an allusion to this theory that was devised by this British pediatrician named Donald Winnicott. And Winnicott was observing how there was this growing sort of idolization of parenting in the mid 20th century. These parents wanted to be the perfect parent and to shield their kid from experiencing any harm. And then when the kid inevitably felt sad or angry or frustrated, the parent took it extremely personally. They thought it was a reflection of their own shortcomings. Winnicott proposed this theory of the, the good enough mother or the good enough parent more broadly. And he argued that by valuing sufficiency over perfection, both the kid and the parent would be better off. The kid would learn how to self-soothe, how to take care of some of their own issues, and the parent wouldn't lose themselves in their child's emotions. And so obviously I'm you know, making the parallel to the working world and this sort of growing idolization of, of work and, and jobs we, we have in American society. And making a similar argument that, you know, a job, much like a crying toddler, is not something that's always in your control. And thinking about sufficiency, thinking about how your job can support your life as opposed to the other way around is ultimately a better formula for happiness. So what is a good enough job? You know, I think first and foremost, it's a job that allows you to be the person that you want to be. It's one thing I like about the framework is it's intentionally subjective. So perhaps your version of a good enough job is a job that pays a certain salary or a job that has a certain title or is in a certain industry. Or maybe it's a job that lets you get off at 3 p.m. so you can pick up your kids from school. But whenever your definition of a good enough job arrives, I hope people recognize when they have it. Because I think a lot of the dissonance comes from this idea of, oh, is there something better out there? You know, I must continue mm -hmm. looking around for the perfect dream. And it's that, that search, that feeling of, of discontentment that actually breeds a lot of disappointment. What does this mean for employers? Do, should they adjust their view of what a good employee looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think we're already starting to see some of these trends mm. where similar to how employers compete with each other to be the most mission driven in the future, you know, more and more employers will try and compete to be perceived at least as the most work life balanced. And I think, you know, a lot of the onus does fall on the shoulders of employers in order to create 
workplaces that allow their employees to be sustainably productive, not just sprinting and burning out, but thinking about how you can develop a relationship to work that can persist over a longer period of time. So I'm inspired by companies that do things like have mandatory minimum vacation days or companies that have leaders that really model the culture that they want to create. You know, I think often when we think about better work-life balance, the onus falls on the individual. We think, you know, you just got to set a boundary or, or, or practice self-care. But really, I think the responsibility lies on the company and the systems in place so that people can take vacation without having to check their email or call in. People can know when they're on and off the clock and what the standard of success of good work looks like so that we're able to rid ourselves of the current status quo, which is for many existing in this perpetual state of half working, you know, like a shark sleeping with one eye open (laughs) and instead have better protections around when we are and when we aren't on the clock. Maybe we can all do our part by next time we're at a dinner party turning to the person next to us and instead of asking what do you do you ask what do you do for fun yeah i like uh what do you like to do Mm. as an alternative to that canonical piece of small talk (laughs) nice one hey great conversation simone stoltsoff is the author of the book is called the good enough job what we gain when we don't put work first good luck with it and thanks so much for your time thanks for having me jesse so you know, diversifying your identity can come in many forms. It can mean getting more involved in your relationships in your local community. It can mean finding a hobby or trying to pursue a passion, not for any sort of monetary end, but just for the love of doing so. But the research shows that when we have more self-complexity, when we have cultivated and invested in other parts of who we are, we not only can bounce back more in the face of adversity, but we also tend to be better workers too. We tend to be more creative problem solvers. You know, this makes sense intuitively. If you are centering your self-worth on your work and your boss says something disparaging, it can spill over into all other facets of your life. But if you have a diversified sense of identity, you're able to, you know, be able to find meaning and purpose in other ways. Man, that applies to so many areas of life, I think. You know, I was just thinking about kids, um, a, a diversified friend group, you know, friends from different schools and different ages and different genders. It just means if one thing goes wrong in your central kind of space, you've got this big kind of... Uh, support your entire self-esteem isn't locked up in one tiny little area yeah of course you know and obviously there's the risk of losing that but even in less extreme situations i think part of what i have observed in the united states is there are these incredibly high expectations that we place on our jobs to deliver you know self-actualization and actually by thinking about a job as just one among many aspects of who we are by thinking about a job as in service of your vision for a well-lived life, as opposed to the central access around which the rest of our life orbits, we will ultimately be better off. So what does a good enough job look like? That's the title of your book, uh, The Good Enough Job. What are we looking for? Yeah, so, you know, it's an allusion to this theory that was devised by this British pediatrician named Donald Winnicott. And 
Winnicott was observing how there was this growing sort of idolization of parenting in the mid 20th century. These parents wanted to be the perfect parent and to shield their kid from experiencing any harm. And then when the kid inevitably felt sad or angry or frustrated, the parent took it extremely personally. They thought it was a reflection of their own shortcomings. Winnicott proposed this theory of the, the good enough mother or the good enough parent more broadly. And he argued that by valuing sufficiency over perfection, both the kid and the parent would be better off. The kid would learn how to self-soothe, how to take care of some of their own issues, and the parent wouldn't lose themselves in their child's emotions. And so obviously I'm you know, making the parallel to the working world and this sort of growing idolization of, of work and, and jobs we, we have in American society and making a similar argument that you know a job, much like a crying toddler, is not something that's always in your control. And thinking about sufficiency, thinking about how your job can support your life as opposed to the other way around is ultimately a better formula for happiness. So what is a good enough job? You know, I think first and foremost, it's a job that allows you to be the person that you want to be. It's one thing I like about the framework is it's intentionally subjective. So perhaps your version of a good enough job is a job that pays a certain salary or a job that has a certain title or is in a certain industry. Or maybe it's a job that lets you get off at 3 p.m. so you can pick up your kids from school. But whenever your definition of a good enough job arrives, I hope people recognize when they have it. Because I think a lot of the dissonance comes from this idea of, oh, is there something better out there? You know, I must continue mm -hmm. looking around for the perfect dream. And it's that, that search, that feeling of, of discontentment that actually breeds a lot of disappointment. What does this mean for employers? Do, should they adjust their view of what a good employee looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think we're already starting to see some of these trends mm. where similar to how employers compete with each other to be the most mission driven in the future, you know, more and more employers will try and compete to be perceived at least as the most work life balanced. And I think, you know, a lot of the onus does fall on the shoulders of employers in order to create workplaces that allow their employees to be sustainably productive, not just sprinting and burning out, but thinking about how you can develop a relationship to work that can persist over a longer period of time. So I'm inspired by companies that do things like have mandatory minimum vacation days, or companies that have leaders that really model the culture that they want to create. You know, I think often when we think about better work-life balance, the onus falls on the individual. We think, you know, you just got to set a boundary or, or, or practice self-care. But really, I think the responsibility lies on the company and the systems in place so that people can take vacation without having to check their email or call in. People can know when they're on and off the clock and what the standard of success of good work looks like so that we're able to rid ourselves of the current status quo, which is for many existing in this perpetual state of half working, you know, like a shark sleeping with one eye open <laughs> and instead have better protections around when we are and when we aren't on the clock. Maybe we can all do our part by... Next time we're at a dinner party, turning to the person next to us and instead of asking, what do you do? 
You ask, what do you do for fun? Yeah, I like, uh, what do you like to do mm. as an alternative to that canonical piece of small talk? <laughs> nice one. Hey, great conversation. Simone Stolsoff is the author of the book. is called The Good Enough Job, What We Gain When We Don't Put Work First. Good luck with it, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jesse.